Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to all of you, wherever you may live in the United States or in other parts of the world. However, for some of you, it is probably already Saturday. And so for those of you, wherever you may live in the world and it's already Saturday, I hope that your weekend has gotten off to a good start. Well, here we are uh, discussing um, more valuable, in-depth information about uh, Michael Schumacher's The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley, A True Story of Loss, Survival, and Rescue at Sea. You know, hard to imagine that um, anyone survived the ordeal that uh, resulted in the Bradleys uh, sinking. You know, we certainly would like to believe that out of 35 crewmen aboard the Bradley, we would certainly want to believe and hope that perhaps 10 or more men would survive. Of course, we all would like to believe that maybe all 35 men could have survived, but it is, um, you know, on one hand, it was joyous knowing that the Sundew was able to find um, two survivors. And it is a miracle that both Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming not only survived uh, this ordeal, given that they were um, on Lake Michigan's waters for 16 hours after the Bradley had initially sunk at 5.30 in the afternoon of uh, November 18th, 1958. But at the same time, knowing that only two, that these two men um, have been uh, found from the crew, you have to wonder, how is it that only two men were found, and yet so many others remain unaccounted for? Well, in this uh, podcast uh, dis- uh, episode, we're going to um, we're going to focus on how uh, the people of Rogers City respond. We're going to um, learn about how this uh, community comes to grip with dealing in dealing with a, a disaster. And I think it's also fair to say that when it comes to any kind of disaster, regardless of how big or small a community may be, it affects everyone in the community. It doesn't always have to take a 9-11-like disaster to um, shake a community or to shake a nation up. Even um, smaller scale incidents. I don't know if I would say that the Bradley was a true small scale incident, but I say that on one hand as being a small scale incident because of the town that it impacted, uh, it was Rogers City is no Chicago, Illinois. It's not Detroit, Michigan. It's not New York City or Boston, Massachusetts, but it is a very uh, close-knit community where everyone knows each other. People look after one another. If the Joneses and the Smiths, if they don't know each other, like neighbor to neighbor, they know of one another through someone else, a.k.a. acquaintances. So this is uh, a, a town that um, that has been rocked to its core. And now we have to, we're going to have to learn uh, one way or another how this uh, town can rise above the ashes or, or rise above rise above um, a travesty and how this community can over time go forward. So our uh, first leadoff uh, question for this um, 
podcast episode of Michael Schumacher's The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley is going to be the following. What does November 19th, the day after the Carl Bradley had sunk, bring to Rogers City, Rogers City's residents? Well, for one, November 19th was a Wednesday, meaning that parents... And in this in and in this case, you know, in Rogers City, there are many families, folks, where both parents go to work, even with uh, children. Of course, in the 1950s, we're kind of accustomed to you know a one-income household where the father goes to work and the wife stays home and takes care of the children. But in Rogers City, that's uh, that's a bit different, and there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, November 19th being a Wednesday. It's a work day. Not only is it a work day, but it's a school day for the children. So a lot of uh, families in two-income households are going to work like they would um, on any other uh, work day. Children go to school as normal. You know, the news has gotten around, but I don't think it's sunk in just yet for everybody. However, uh, some of the Bradley family members with missing relatives choose to stay home. So, in other words, uh, some, um, some of the, um, we could say some of the wives, for example, choose to stay home, not so much because, say, their husbands could still be missing, but in this case, if it's not a wife's husband that was aboard the Bradley crewman, aboard the Bradley uh, ship, it could have been, say, her uncle a relative, um, her father, or let alone her brother, or her cousin. So it's more than just immediate family here. We're also thinking about extended family as well, too. Prior to uh, November 18, 1958, Rogers City, Michigan had never dealt with a disaster, which would go about drawing news reporters from all around the United States. Remember how the... Um, the Klons um, were confronted by reporters from as far away as Boston, Chicago, New York, wanting to get the latest information. What did the Klons do? They didn't fall for temptation. The Klons, they were the ones that uh, ran the radio station in Rogers City. They had to think about the well-being of the families since they were acquaintances with many of those families. So, you know, it's one thing now to have this disaster become not just a national news phenomenon, but perhaps a worldwide phenomenon. Think about it. Canada will get word of this. Mexico. I mean, I'm going to assume Mexico, but and then you got other then you got European nations uh, that will find out about this. So it's not just a national event now. It's going to become an international event of sorts. And then it's one thing for the news to break out about this, but think about this, folks. Now, who, you know, it's one thing when a news event happens, but then we have to ask ourselves, how, why would a reporter come all the way from New York City to Rogers City, Michigan, just to get the news about this event? For one, isn't it fair to say that that nothing took place in New York City that would have impacted the sinking of the Carl Bradley? That's true. At the same time, though, New York City is a big hub. It's not just a mecca for tourists in 1958 like it is today, 
But New York City is probably one of those uh, cities where news, once news reaches that city, then people know about it. And if they don't know about it right away, but know it from someone else, then you're going to send those reporters to the primary source, not the, so much the source of where the incident itself happened, but the source to where people are living in the town whose extended family members are either lost at sea or uh, acquaintances are. may sound a little complex, but we have to remember um, in 1958, yes, there were ways of going about accessing the news. However, you didn't have multiple ways like you do in today's 21st century world where you can access news at any time, day or night, 24-7, 365 days a year. So we have to be constantly reminding ourselves, folks, of how of how far we've come in the last 60 years when it comes to um, accessing the news, for better or for worse. You know, yes, it's awkward enough that um, Rogers City, Michigan, the people of Rogers City had never dealt with a disaster of this magnitude. The people in Rogers City are used to getting their local news in a weekly paper. So when you read about the news... <laughs> In a weekly paper, that's a big deal right there. But now to have people coming from all over the country, that's a whole nother um, game for these people. It's a whole nother foreign concept, to say the least. The Bradley sinking and disappearance, I should say, also reached sources like Time and Life magazines. For those of you of the younger generations who have been listening um, to my podcasts, and especially with this series, if you're not familiar with Life Magazine, it was something that um, my parents and my grandparents grew up um, reading. Uh, Life Magazine was in existence up until, I want to say, the mid or late 1980s. The first time I uh, looked at a Life Magazine, I had to have been at least uh, 9 or 10 years old. And on the front cover of the magazine, my dad kept the magazine. He kept this particular magazine because of the reason why he kept it was because of the uh, significance behind the event that happened. November 22nd, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. There was a picture of uh, Mrs. Kennedy in her veil her dress with a veil covered over her face with her two young children uh, by her side and other Kennedy family members and um, security detail and uh, members of the um, armed services getting ready to uh, bring the president's casket um, down to the um, uh, down to the um, horse carriage but it was just one of those um, moments in time that um, for my parents and their generation, it was one of those moments in time that they never forgot. I mean, after all, it, the Kennedy assassination was their 9-11. Now, I'm not trying to get off track here on purpose, but when I think of magazines that aren't around anymore, like Life Magazines, like Life Magazine, for example, that ought to be worth mentioning to, uh, to you all, my fellow listeners who are part of a younger generation. So this way, 
you can ask your parents about Life Magazine and what they remember most about it. Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays' names, given that they are the survivors, they are the only two survivors at this time, of course, we still want to hold out for the thought that there might be some other survivors who could come, who, who, who somehow miraculously survived in the same way that Elmer Fleming and, Fle and Frank Mays did. But for Fleming and Mays, their names are not released right away for privacy reasons. After the Sundew had picked them up, this gives other families, or families in general, a better sense of hope. What do I mean by hope here, folks? For the families who, who, don't, who still don't have any word on the whereabouts of their husbands, an uncle, a brother, cousin, father, or just, you know, some extended uh, relative, it just gives them hope and the ability to pray a little bit longer for a miracle. You know, nobody ever wants to assume the worst, but you still want to cling on to a sliver of hope. So it's kind of nice to know that there are still, um, at this time, privacy. Um, there is a privacy protocol that's being um, taken into consideration. And also... You know, yes, we can be joyous that Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays are alive, but at the same time, we shouldn't gloat on it to death, because if we gloat on it too much, then we're not thinking about the families whose loved ones are still missing. There needs to be an equal balance here, folks, and I think they're doing a good job of it. What newspaper, a.k.a. A weekly newspaper, serves... Rogers City and will assist in handling the national media. It is the Prescue Isle Advance. You know, Rogers City, as I mentioned earlier, is no uh, New York City. It's not uh, Boston, Massachusetts. It's not Chicago, Illinois. And it's not Detroit, Michigan. But hey, people in Rogers City like where they live. It's small. But is it fair to say that Rogers City does not have a vast number of lodging places? Yes. So here you've got news reporters from various parts of the United States um, already in Rogers City. And now you've got to ask yourself this question. How, where, how, how and where are we going to go about housing these news reporters? They've got to find a place to stay. I mean, we can't just ship them three hours south to Detroit. I'm going to assume it's le at, le at least uh, three hours from Detroit to Rogers City, vice versa, but I'm just going to um, use a makeshift number here. That's an awful lot of backtracking to send a group of reporters all the way three hours south when the incident itself didn't happen there. But these uh, people do need to be housed somewhere. So what are some... Um, major or what I, well, I don't know if I'd say major, but how about mid-level cities that are nearby Rogers City? Does anybody want to take a guess at, um, at what some, at what some uh, mid-level cities might be in terms of their names that could go about um, accommodating this influx of uh, news reporters? How about a Alpena to the east, spelled A-L-P-E-N-A, -E Alpena? And then how about Traverse City to the west? And remember, folks, Traverse City is just south of Charlevoix. 
And who knows, uh, Charlevoix um, could be another good spot, too, for lodging, um, because it's not far from Rogers City. So there are some um, nearby options for um, these for the influx of news reporters who have come in from various parts of the nation. What news begins to unravel come mid-morning October 19th? Well, let me ask you all this. Is it good news or bad news? I wished I could say it was good news, folks, but I will have to tell you all right now that we're going to be learning about some bad news. U.S. Coast Guard boats on Lake Michigan start finding the bodies of Bradley crewmen. You know, it's one thing to find a body, but now you but if you don't see any sign of life in the person, you know, I can't imagine being a Coast Guard um, crew person and all of a sudden having to retrieve dead bodies. But you know what? Somebody has to do that job. It's one thing to retrieve a dead body or dead bodies out of the water. It's another thing for the proper personnel to address to the family members of the missing that that their loved ones are gone. It's a very, uh, very trying time, to say the least. As the day goes forward on November 19th, more Bradley victims' bodies get recovered by the U.S. Coast Guard. The crewmen's families are faced with the grim realization that there is a strong likelihood of more men, or rather I should say crewmen, whom will die, or I should say perish, versus um, surviving, versus having survived on Lake Michigan's waters. You know, um, I, it's not only are um, spouses impacted by this, but is it fair to say that even the children themselves, no matter how old or young they are, whether a child is an adult by the time he or she is 18 years old to a child who's just five or seven years old, it is fair to say that any child or young adult who has reached adult status at age 18 will be impacted by this um, ordeal. Exactly how many children got impacted by the Bradley sinking? That is, children of, um, of, the, of, of the Bradley families, that is, folks. I'm going to give you some numbers here. Uh, and I'm going to give you some options, rather, I should say. So the question again is, how many children got impacted by the Bradley sinking? Was it choice A, 40? Is it choice B, 50? Choice C, 56? The answer, folks, is choice C. 56 children got impacted by the Bradley sinking. 56, folks. Can you imagine being one of those 56 children, not knowing if your father is going to come home alive, not knowing if you lost one of, one of your dearest uncles, a brother, a cousin? You know, it's one thing to lose a family member to an illness, and yes, that's uh, tragic. Because even when you lose a loved one to an illness, Sometimes he or she 
yes, well, anybody can put up a good fight with an illness, but it doesn't always mean that they'll survive and beat it. But what's unfortunate for these 56 children is that I know uh, Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays have children, so their children, however, don't know just yet that their uh, fathers that their fathers are alive. I know they will be um, very, very happy when they do know that their fathers are in fact alive. But unfortunately, the same might not be able to be said for um, 33 other. Um, the same won't be able to be said for children from the other 33 families whose um, fathers or uncles, however you want to say it, will not sadly be coming home. If that's hard enough, at the same time, two wives of Bradley Crewman were expecting children. So to think that these uh, two wives whom are expecting children, those children who come into the world will never, will never get to meet their fathers. To me, that's sad. It really is. Are many of the missing Bradley crewmen found close by to one another? Yes, they are. As a matter of fact, they are found close by to one another uh, right near right nearby Goal Island, which is where the Bradley herself had sunk at around 5.30 the day after on the 18th. Many of the men were floating close together in an area covering over 100 yards as well as having their life jackets on and their heads were down with arms extended out. You know, it's easy to think that a life jacket could save you from the worst, um, from the worst weather disasters, from the, from the most unexpected of circumstances that would uh, throw you overboard. You know, a life jacket will last as long as it can, but when it comes to um, hypothermia, hypothermia can strike so quick that no matter what is protecting you from the outside like a life jacket won't be enough to save you because the hypothermia itself is leads to such initial shock that it will um, take over a person's ability to reason properly uh, to where they lose um, they lose um, they're, they lose self-consciousness. In other words, they no longer become conscious. So, yes, you know, yes, these men who didn't survive, yes, they may have had their life jackets on, but we just have to remember that even a life jacket alone can't uh, save a person from drowning, or a life jacket alone cannot prevent one from um, succumbing to hypothermia. Some men, you know, some men drowned either from ingesting uh, water resulting in huge waves or as a result from inhaling water-saturated air. And we have to keep in mind that uh, these waves were coming at full force. So every time the waves knocked down a person from where they were in the water, it wasn't just the fact that, you know, John Smith, for example, a fictitious name, got knocked down. John Smith was also um, trying to stay afloat, and that also meant flailing uncontrollably to the point when the water struck him, that he, if his mouth was open, then yes, um, 
he would have ingested the water that came from those huge waves at such full force that um, it wouldn't have taken much for him to have uh, drowned in a short amount of time. Others fell to hypothermia. Some had broken necks due to whiplash on once hitting the water after having been violently thrown off the Bradley. Let's keep in mind, folks, that um, when we, well, when we think of someone breaking their neck, we think of um, like a violent collision. How about being thrown off a 638-foot ship with 60-mile-an-hour winds? A ship has already broken? This isn't like going off a diving board, folks. I mean, this is something that these men had no control over. So if you get thrown violently off a ship, yeah, you are more than likely going to uh, land in an uncomfortable uh, position to the point where um, not only, yes, could you inhale a lot of uh, sea water, but depending on how you fall and at the speed you fall into the water, then yes, you there is a likelihood you could break your neck. So it's more than just uh, bodies floating above the surface, folks. We are seeing men in awkward positions. An awkward position that, you know, resulted in um, a broken neck. It's scary, but this is, um, this is reality, folks. Some Bradley crewmen bodies have ended up in shallower waters where the sundew cannot get access to them. However, uh, Captain Harold Muth of the sundew does have a solution to this problem. He has a ramp boat inside his, um, somewhere, either above, or I'm going to assume it's somewhere above the, uh, the sundew in terms of its uh, front deck or main deck, but he has a ramp boat that will rescue those men in shallower waters. So, where the sundew itself can't go, the ramp boat can make up for it. And this way, those men that, whose bodies did float into shallower waters will not be left behind. Yes, they, those, those men are gone, but at least they will have been um, rescued and um, be brought back to their proper homes where where they will get a proper burial. Now, for these uh, men who go about in, going on the ramp boat and will um, and go about rescuing these men uh, with bodies in shallower waters, they had to use what are called boat hooks that would secure the Bradley crewmen by their life jackets. Well, rather, I should say, in non-shallower waters, rather, I need to, I should say that, so, you know, there are different ways of going about rescuing um, people, that is, um, the deceased uh, crewmen. That's good to know because, there again, we don't want to leave anyone behind even when we know they are now uh, deceased. Is second mate hospital man Warren Toussaint from the Sundew legally authorized to declare a Bradley crew person dead? Uh, the answer is no. 
However, he does go about checking each man's vital signs as a means of proper protocol. He must place each man's watch, wallet, and other personal items in an envelope. The wallets alone will help identify each man who was uh, reported lost. Now, I can't imagine being in uh, Warren Toussaint's shoes and knowing that you know, yes, you know, yes, he's probably uh, dealt with a lot of um, unique uh, situations in his lifetime, but I don't know who's to say that he's dealt with this many um, crewmen of another ship who uh, lost their lives. Who's to say that he has dealt with um, 10 or, or just over a dozen uh, deceased uh, crewmen? And knowing that he's got to um, check each man's vital signs just to see if they're still alive. I can't imagine looking at those bodies and knowing that I, if I was in Warren Toussaint's shoes, that knowing I had to fulfill that uh, assignment. But you know what? Somebody's got to do that. Somebody has to do it. There were no um, formal rooms on the sundew for storing the Bradley uh, for storing the deceased Bradley crewmen. However, um, the sundew crew, and, and you got to take your hats off to this crew. They really, um, I mean, they have sacrificed a lot. I mean, this is part of their job. This is to this is what is to be expected. But they um, have gone above and beyond um, to ensure that. For one, a makeshift hospital was already put in place, not only just for Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays, uh, but also for any other uh, crewmen that um, that would have survived. But at the same time, you know, you do want to um, do something for the deceased, so that um, so that their that their bodies aren't exposed. Um, out in the open, there isn't it fair to say that even a, a deceased crew person should be um, covered properly? Yes. So, what can they do in the meantime? Well, the Sundew crew will go about lining the dead on a buoy deck where they will stay until arriving into Charlevoix. Now, besides rescuing the two survivors in Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays, how many deceased Bradley crewmen did the Sundew recover? Did they recover um, 12 men? Did they recover 15 or choice C, less than 10? Well, you know, to me it sounds like they recovered probably more than 10. But in actuality, folks, they recovered less than 10. They recovered eight men. You know, eight does seem like a big number, but um, it may not be the grandest number. But, you know, maybe recovering eight eight of the uh, deceased uh, crewmen is, you know, better than none. Yes, you would have wanted to have found eight men alive, but it just wasn't meant to be. Captain Muth and hospital man Warren Toussaint are emotionally burnt. Can you blame them? No. Including others from the Sundew. But Warren uh, Toussaint 
came up with a very, very brilliant decision at the right place at the right time. He orders, he orders the eight deceased men to be covered with a tarp for privacy purposes. And Captain Muth agrees to this because they're not far from Charlevoix. And we have to keep in mind, folks, that uh, when the boat, when the Sundew comes into uh, Charlevoix's uh, deck or, you know, harbor, there's going to be a score of people. We're talking, you know, families. We're talking about news reporters. We're talking about, you know, even Bradley Transportation Company officials who were there. We're talking about the whole nine yards here, folks. So it's essential that there be some privacy in place. Is it appropriate under any circumstances to be coming into the dock with eight deceased bodies on the buoy deck fully exposed? No. The families are grieving enough as it is. Do you want to add any more um, insult to injury? No. So, you know, we may not have the most elaborate of um, equipment or technology at this time in 1958. I mean, I'm not saying that we're in the dark ages in 1958, but when we have limited uh, resources, we've also got to be um, clever and smart with how we can go about modifying a situation that's already bad enough as it is, but we've also got to find a way to modify it so that we don't add any more, um, what do you call it? We don't add any more um, emotional burden or any more um, sadness to the uh, families whose loved ones have been unaccounted for. So that's why, thank goodness, that uh, hospital man Warren, Warren Toussaint and and his captain, Captain Harold Muth, went along and others from the Sundew by uh, covering the eight deceased men with a tarp. Or not just a tarp, but w yes, with a, with a tarp, believe it or not, uh, folks. I mean, this tarp had to have been pretty big to uh, cover all eight of these men. Now, let me ask you all this. Um, we, we just mentioned a second ago that, yes, there are probably uh, news reporters and um, other uh, people already um, there, but are ambulances and hearses already uh, stationed nearby at Charlevoix's City Pier, which normally handles uh, ferry boats? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, believe it or not, folks, uh, for those of you of the younger generation, you would be surprised to learn, my dad told me this uh, some years back, that when he was growing up, ambulances were not at hospitals. They were actually stationed at funeral homes at one time. That's just the way it was, but for a good number of years, if you needed to um, reach out and call uh, for an emergency, and we have to also remember this too, folks, many of you young people may not know this, but uh, 911 um 911 emergency calls were not introduced until the late 1960s. So we've always had this assumption that ever since telephones existed that 911 has been there. Nope. Nope. The, the 911 emergency call did not uh, come about until the 1960s. And for, one, for a period of time, um, ambulances were at uh, 
funeral um, stations, funeral home stations, and not at hospitals. So yes, ambulances and hearses are already state are already stationed nearby at Charlebois City Pier. This was done to help speed things along with regards to transferring the uh, victims and survivors. Well, after all, the survivors are on the boat, folks. Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming. You know, they need to get to a hospital. Frank Mays, the first of the two survivors to come off the sundew and make way onto ambulance, was so alert that he recognized people in the crowd, such as family members of his crewmates. You talk about someone who is tough. Well, just like Elmer Fleming, both of these men were tough. Did Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays meet with news reporters, a.k.a. the press, while in the hospital? Believe it or not, folks, they did. How could anybody want to meet with the press at, right, right away after, not just so much right away, but the same day that you've gotten off a ship, you've experienced 16 hours of... Um, of a frightening um, ordeal that in many ways could leave you could leave scars for the rest of your life but yes Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays did meet with uh, news reporters or, or, aka the press while in the hospital uh, Fleming advised the press staff that he had spent the majority of the night November 18th in prayer but he never once openly admitted that his personal religious faith saved him but not 33 other fellow crewmen. It is fair to say that all of the crewmen aboard the Bradley and like any other um, ship of the Bradley fleet or anywhere else, for that matter, along the Great Lakes, anybody, not just individual, but for the entire crew of a ship, would, um, would cling to hope at all times through the best and worst of times. So... For Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays, they are both perplexed by how they survived, but at the same time, they can't figure out why 33 of their fellow comrades, a.k.a. crewmen, died, whom turned to faith as well, but yet sadly lost their lives. Yeah, that is a very, very tough question. I don't think anybody could ever really have a true answer to that. Is it fair to say that, that God is still looking after the deceased? Yes. He's watching over them. I mean, he he's watching over them by comforting them and telling telling them that they're that they're no longer suffering in vain. That they're no that they're no longer suffering to where the pain is no longer inflicting them. God knows that he might not be able to bring them back, but he can at least comfort them knowing that they're no longer suffering out on the um, unpredictable waters of Lake Michigan. I'm not a theologian, uh, but that's probably the best answer I could come up with if somebody were to ask me based upon what I asked, what I addressed to you all uh, earlier. Did a press conference uh, take place involving Frank Mays and El Elmer Fleming? It seems like these two men really aren't able to get true 100% privacy in the hospital. However, we ought to keep in mind that um, Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays 
while yes, they have survived a, um, a horrific um, incident, they still have the energy in them to want to talk. But at the same time, they, they themselves know um, that they have to be careful about what they say. Because while, yes, they are dealing with reporters, they are also dealing with a handful of reporters that they have probably never met in their lifetime. And who's to say that whatever they tell these reporters, is it fair to say that the reporters will get the story right or will they fabricate something and um, turn it into something that opposite of what the two men have said? So... You know, yes, Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming are very relieved to be alive, but at the same time, yes, they have to be very careful about um, what they address. However, one of the first questions directed at both men pertained to the Bradleys breaking apart. Elmer Fleming told reporters where he exactly was when the first initial thud or loud sound occurred. Uh, Fleming was stationed in the pilot house, which is the... Um, which is the room um, that is the, um, it's on the tallest structure of the ship's deck. That's where the, um, the wheelsmen um, can be found um, steering the uh, ship and where the meeting room is to discuss um, important matters. Like in, you know, in the case right before the Bradley sunk, how uh, Captain Roland Bryan and his crew would go about um, navigating the ship through the storm so anyways, yes, Elmer Fleming was there because he was first mate. He was next in line to the captain. So he um, he told reporters where he exactly was when the first initial thud or loud sound occurred. Then he described uh, to reporters about how he went about hearing the alarm bell go off only to look downward on the deck when he saw firsthand that the stern itself was no wasn't intact no more. That's a pretty good description right there. I mean, you know, here you are, what what you would think is the safest place to be a, on top level of a ship, and then all of a sudden the bell, uh, the alarm bell rings, and then all of a sudden you look downward, and it's like, oh my gosh, you mean to tell me one thud alone is has resulted in breaking this ship, 638 feet long, is now breaking apart in two. Just like that, folks. And we're not talking a calm, peaceful night, folks. We're talking about a storm. 60 mile an hour winds from the southwest. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's scary, all right. But it did happen. The conference... Um, of reporters, the conference itself was confined to just 10 questions. I'm not sure exactly what other questions were asked, but the most, but the one that was asked obviously had to do with the Bradleys breaking apart. Um, how many of the 33 uh, crewmen whom went down, or rather perished on the Bradley, have had their bodies recovered? Is it um, between 15 and 20? Or uh, between 10 and 15? Uh, the answer is choice A, uh, between 15 and 20, with the answer being 18. 13 of the 18 um, crewmen whose bodies were already found um, hailed from Rogers City. 11 
of those men attended St. Ignatius Catholic Church. And we'll learn more about that church in the, in the next time I'm on the air. Is Rogers City equipped to handle funerals on a mass scale, such as what has happened with involving the Carl D. Bradley sinking? Uh, the answer is no. Rogers City is not equipped to handle funerals on a mass scale. So as funeral and burial preparations begin underway, the media's presence continues to expand. I would hope that the media would have enough decency to give people, especially the families of the missing crewmen or of the fam including the families of the already deceased crewmen, the proper privacy that they deserve. But even in 1958, maybe it's safe to say that there were no guarantees then. Of course, as I've said before, and I'd say it again, the technology obviously was not the same like it is today, but at the same time, it is fair to say that there were those in 1958 who, who sadly did break uh, boundaries. On the other hand, one could say, what about accessibility? Of course, the level of accessibility back then was not the same like it is today, but that's a whole other topic for another time. But those are just uh, other questions to think about there. So, 15 men folks still remain unaccounted for uh, who are um, from the Bradley. How many funeral service um, facilities are there in Rogers City, folks? Is there only one? Or is there more than one? Uh, the answer is cho choice A. There's only one. However, um, prior to uh, the Bradley sinking, the town's funeral home uh, center had never been placed in a situation where multiple bodies had undergone being handled at the same time. You know, if, if you... If, if they went about handling two bodies at the same time, that might have seemed like a large number. But how about, you know, trying eight or ten at one time? That's that's a big deal, especially when it involves a, uh, a ship um, disaster that has um, impacted the community on a broad, large scale. Florists from all over, uh, not only in just Rogers City, but outside Rogers City, assist in preparing flower arrangements for the caskets. Churches help out. And then there will be uh, a larger service at City High. And believe it or not, many households have opened their homes to outsiders who need a place to stay. Who could these outsiders be? Could they be outsiders of... Um, in the sense, the outsiders being family um, relatives who lived across the country. After all, some of the uh, Bradley crewmen did not live in Rogers City. There was one who lived in Canoe, Ohio, which is not far from Erie, Pennsylvania. There was one man who lived in Iowa. Another man lived in Ohio. Um, Captain Roland Bryan uh, lived, although he was born in Ontario, Canada, he lived, um, he lived in Loudonville, New York outside of Albany. So, you know, there are relatives of these um, crewmen who did not survive who will be coming as well. You know, it's nice to think during, that there was a time when people could open up their homes to outsiders whom were in need of a place to stay and they never had to worry about 
being held hostage. Many people would think twice nowadays in doing something like that. It doesn't make it right, but how much time, but how sad to say how how uh, drastic um, the times have changed in, in the world that we live in. But yes, many households do open their homes to outsiders who need a place to stay. A group of sitters has already been lined up to watch children, that is the younger children whose family members are attending the funeral services. Throughout the state of um, Michigan, civic groups, banks, churches, newspapers, to businesses, they all come together by establishing fundraiser events where all money raised will go to support the families with deceased loved ones. You know, funerals aren't cheap, and how do you go about picking up the pieces after your loved one has been um, laid to rest, or I should say interred? It's nice to know that there are people out there from the outside world whom are interested enough in wanting to um, help out those in times of uh, despair like this. So thank heavens that civic groups, churches, newspapers, businesses all want to come in and make a difference. Did the Sundew go back out for another search mission? Yes. But the search also includes the Hollyhawk, another U.S. Coast Guard cutter ship, the ships found pieces of wreckage and debris washed ashore on Gull Island, but rather I should say on Gull and Whiskey Islands. Items found ranged from life jacket, multiple life preservers, to a capsized lifeboat. It's one thing to find a dead crewman, but then when you find the other items, it hits you even more. To me, it, it, where it would hit me is knowing that there was not a whole lot of time. And yes, you can prepare for the unexpected all you want left and right. But when it happens, how can you really be, tr how can you really be truly prepared for it? Because you don't always have 30 minutes to prepare for it, pre pre to prepare for um, a natural disaster. Or not just a natural disaster, but a disaster on the sea. When it happens, you're talking about precious time, and time is not a luxury that even those on the Great Lakes have, especially when the skies of November turn gloomy. I've said that phrase many of times before from past uh, podcast episodes here, but that, that phrase was in uh, Gordon Lightfoot's famous song from 1976 in uh, tribute to the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Does the sinking of the Carl D. Bradley require an all-out investigation by, US, by the U.S. Coast Guard? Yes. Uh, the process involves establishment of an official four-member board of inquiry, which will determine the root cause or the causes of the accident to determining what steps are essential in preventing another would-be similar incident. The inquiry will involve testimony from surviving crewmen like Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays, experts whom specialize in ship design and construction, to eyewitnesses, inspectors, company officials, or rather I should say Bradley Transportation Company officials. 
Was the Carl D. Bradley sinking the most costly of all shipwrecks in Great Lakes history? Yes, it was. The loss of the Bradley was estimated at $8 million on top of losing 33 men. $8 million doesn't seem like a lot of money, but somehow it is. I, I, I truly thought at one time that maybe the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald was the costliest of all shipwrecks on, in the Great Lakes, but it turns out that it's, it was actually the Carl D. Bradley. Let's uh, keep this in mind here, folks, as we're close to wrapping up this uh, podcast episode. Whereas no price can be placed on a human life. Let's keep that in mind, folks. We can't place a price tag on a person or on um, people in general. What group of uh, people, or rather I should say what profession, has no limitations when it comes to seeking money no matter how big or small the matter itself might be. Lawyers. Lawyers have no limitations when it comes to seeking money. However, money can't bring any of the 33 Bradley deceased crewmen back. So yes, the lawyers can, can, a, uh, can achieve a nice settlement sum. They can, they can reach a... a, a a great amount of uh, money awarded to the families. But just remember, that money will never be able to bring back the deceased. But you better hope that that money will be used for, um, for the right reasons. Money, we should be reminded that money can be, one of the, can be a, an evil, but it can also be a greater undoing, not just to individuals, but to a, great, but to a community and to the greater society as a whole. November, on November 20th, uh, Vice Admiral Alfred C. Richmond, who is the U.S. Coast Guard Commandant, goes about appointing a board of inquiry that will officially meet the day after November 21st at Prescue Isle County Courthouse in Rogers City. November 21st will be also be the same day for which the town will start the official morning services. And we'll learn more about that in the next, uh, the next time I'm on the air. Is it fair to say, when we, in wrapping up this podcast, that the Board of Inquiry would like to get the matter resolved as efficiently as possible? Yes. If they wait much later to begin the inquiry, then people will wonder, is the Board of Inquiry hiding the truth? Are they hiding other details from the greater community that, uh, that the greater community them, themselves ought not to be made aware of. So the Board of Inquiry wants to get this matter resolved in a timely manner. And how will they go about doing that? Well, by interviewing witnesses shortly after the Bradley sinking, but they also do not want to deal with attorneys who have the power to do unbecoming things like hiding or keeping witnesses silent. Think about this. If there are witnesses out there who know, who have information to share, that could be like the equivalent of a smoking gun. Yeah, you'd like to have those witnesses come testify. But at the same time, history has has shown that witnesses who knew a lot of information were <laughs> taken out by people above as a means of keeping that other person silent. 
Why would, uh, why would an attorney want to do that in this situation? I don't know. But we have to keep in mind that, that people are... There are people even in 1958 who can do things that are very unbecoming. Maybe not on the same scale like it is in today's unpredictable world, but let's just keep in mind that even in 1958, we still have to be careful about whom we can and can't trust. But we also have to uh, make sure that we get the facts straight. And that by getting the facts straight, while it may not be able to bring back 33 other men's lives, what we want to ensure, what we want to go about ensuring is that nothing similar will happen like what happened to the Bradley. Well, thank you again for your time, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. And when I am on the air again next, we will uh, discuss about the, uh, the, the greater funeral services. Thank you again for your time, as always, and um, thank you for being such great listeners. I'm very fortunate to have you all, uh, my, faithful felt, my faithful 101 podcast listeners, keep spreading the word out to those who want to learn more, because by doing so, uh, they will get their money's worth. I'm not in it for the income, I'm in it for the outcome, but hey, I'm just glad to have you all along. Take care and stay safe.